It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It's good to be back with you this week. As last week, Pam and Mariah and I were back in Georgia. We spent the time over in St. Simon's Island. And I will tell you this. The Atlantic Ocean doesn't really have anything on the Gulf Coast. When you come to the Gulf Coast, it's just beautiful. But I will have to say this. One thing the Atlantic Ocean does, we were on the Atlantic Coast, and it was about 10 to 12 degrees cooler on the Atlantic Coast than it was here on the Gulf Coast. That I appreciated very much and enjoyed it. And so I kind of miss in Georgia a little bit. So just in case, I knew one of the things I looked forward to is football season was going to be starting first, so I thought I'd bring a little... Just a little uh, something to keep my water cool this morning. And just to rejoice that with the coming of football season reminds me of the coming of fall. The coming of fall means that God has ordained a time when things will begin to cool off a little bit. And I'm rejoicing this morning. I'm rejoicing. And what I'm even rejoicing more about is we'll be in Psalm 130 this morning, which brings us about this will be the 11th sermon in this series called the Psalms of Ascent. And we've kind of been on a journey this summer. And I hope that everyone in here has gotten something out of this journey. I think in these psalms, as we see these psalms that the, that the Jewish pilgrims were seeing as they, as they traveled to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and, you know, to lay their sacrifices for their sin and also to, to celebrate, to celebrate that their God was so good and so gracious to them that they could come offer a sacrifice for that sin that they didn't necessarily get all that they deserved. And so Psalm 130 this morning, as we look at it, it's going to be both a psalm of lament, which lament means what? Lament's a time of sorrow, a time of deep distress, it's a time of weeping. But this psalm, not only is a psalm of lament, but it's also a psalm that's going to lead us from lament into joyous thanksgiving. And so that's good because sometimes our life moves from the depths of the valley to the heights of the mountaintop. Amen? God mostly does not leave us in the valley. He does bring us to the mountaintops. I was with a group of ladies this morning who were leading our prayer time before the worship service, and they prayed for me. And they were talking about, as I come in, I kind of interrupted them. I come in the last few minutes. And I kind of interrupted them, and they were just saying, well, we're just giving thanks, we're just giving thanks to God, just, being, just giving gratitude to God. And I, and I was thinking to myself, that is so wonderful. I love hearing people say that. And what I loved even more was this. They were saying, even in the hard times, we just give thanks to God. And when we can learn to give thanks to God, even in the difficult times, I know that we're beginning to, get a, we're beginning to grab hold of a sense of, the good news of Jesus. Because I don't care how bad our times are. If you're in Christ, you always have Christ. You can't lose him. He won't flee from you. He is always there. So no matter how bad our times get, a good and a gracious God, a wonderful Savior, a Redeemer, is with us. And he's there for us. In fact, I was thinking as I write this, he said, you know, uh, I was thinking that, you know, if all the church, if all we had to sing in the church was just good, happy songs. I mean, everybody likes a good, happy song, right? I mean, they've got got songs. I think the the title is Happy, Happy, Happy or something like that. But everybody sings it's a catchy. We love singing happy songs. But if all that we had in the church 
If the only songs we ever sung were just happy songs, then what could we really sing when we're in the pits, we're in, we're in the valleys, when God has us in a time of distress, what we have to sing? Because we got to be honest, our lives are sometimes filled with just hard and difficult times. We're talking about, again, so much from this morning, we're talking about the seasons of life in, in men, but especially in elders, and we're talking about the seasons of life as we age, things change. It's harder for me to move up these steps now for me now than it was 10 years ago when I first got here. To stand on my feet after being primarily in a job that requires you to be on your feet all the time. My feet just hurt. My back hurts. My legs hurt. My hips. But you know about those things. And if you don't know about it, you will know about it at some point. And then you'll say, oh, yeah, I remember that guy when he's talking about that that morning. But godly people's lives are filled with hard things, and sometimes they're so hard that it's hard, it's difficult for us to conceive that they could even bear being born. Just some people's lives seem to be hard. You've known those people. You've met those. Maybe you, you consider yourself one of those people. Just it seems like time after time, you're beaten down, you're beaten back. And I want to say this this morning, church, that God has been so kind to give us a hymn book, a hymn book called the Psalms. So that when times do get hard, we even have songs to sing to him. That when those dives and those circumstances do come, we can know exactly what to say to God, what to sing to him. God is so kind to us just to say this to us. He'll say to us, hey, let me put my words in your mouth, what you need to know right now. Because the Lord doesn't need to know what we need. He already knows what we need. Amen? God already knows. But you and I need to know what we need. And therefore, God puts his words in our mouth this morning to sing to him. And that's what we're going to look at. So before we read, I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to read Psalm 130. So let's pray. Gracious Lord and gracious God, our King, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Comforter, our Advocate, the Lord, Maker and Creator in heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Elohim, you are our God, and there is no other. And we come before you this morning pleading as your people. We plead, O oh God, open our ears, open our eyes, and open our hearts to your word this morning. Let us see your beauty and your glory. Let us see your word in all its fullness and how it applies both to our lives but also into the lives of our family and our friends. Oh, Lord Jesus, draw us to yourself and Holy Spirit, apply the words of Christ to our hearts this morning that we can shout at the end of this service that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and that we may be your people in this world today. So, Father, we love you and we thank you for this privilege this morning. And all of God's people said, Amen. So this morning, let me read to you from Psalm 130, which in my scripture is titled, My Soul Waits for the Lord, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all iniquities. Amen and amen. And thus reads the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And I want us to see this morning four things as we walk from lament, from a time of a time of crying out in sorrow and in pain to a time of thanksgiving. And I want us to see these four things. The first of those four things I want us to see is that we have a song to sing, church. We have a song to sing. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me in your copy of the Scriptures. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. There's a contemporary theologian and author. His name is Carl Truman. I know some of you have heard of him, but maybe most of you have not heard of him. But he had an opportunity to go around and preach in several churches and to be present in several churches as their pastors preach of a number of different denominations. And having been in those various settings, he came back and told his friends what, uh, about his experiences. And he talked about his experiences had mostly been positive in the way these churches and the way these pastors handled the preaching of God's word. And he was quite encouraged at the steady faithful preaching of the word in all those various denominational contexts. But there was one thing that struck Mr. Truman, one thing that struck him out of the context, and it was their singing. He said all the singing was happy, it was celebratory. And there's nothing wrong in the singing that would have helped, you know, us to stand up and our spirits be lift. But he said, you know, there was nothing that would have helped a struggling saint. If she or she had come to church that morning and their hopes had been crushed. That maybe the day before or two couple of days before they had been given a terrible diagnosis. Or they had recently had a loved one to pass away, maybe, maybe a child to die. What would that struggling saint need to hear at that times? That maybe they couldn't join in when everybody is singing rah, rah, happy. What would they do? And that led him to write an article called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Now, you can find this article if you go to ninemarks.org and you look there, Nine Marks, you can put it in their search bar and it'll bring this article up. He wrote it about 12 years ago. And he pointed out that God in the Psalms has given Christians who were despairing, who were discouraged, who were struggling in the depths, songs to sing back to him, our God. And that's a very important piece in our Christian experience because Christian life, as I said earlier, has its depths when we're down in the valley, when it seems like everyone's against us or everything's against us, when we feel low, we feel defeated, we feel broken. And yet God gives us things. God knew this, and he gives us songs to sing to him. Have you ever thought why God gives us songs at all? 
Now, I can't tell it from looking at some of you, but if I look at most of you, when you begin to sing, I see your countenance lift as we sing to the Lord. It's something about singing. Man, it, 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 it elevates the mood. It's a natural antidepressant. It's a natural anti-anxiety medication. And I don't know why we don't do it more. Now, I'm going to go back a little bit, but I can remember my home church, we used to have these fifth Sunday night singings. You know, that was a special night in Baptist life where the preacher, he didn't have to preach a message on Sunday night. He just, we just sang. This congregation sang. And here's what we would do. Our preacher, Lily, he was a musical guy. I'm not a musical guy. Although I might break out in song before I get down from here today. I can't promise that I won't, especially since I'm encouraged this morning that better days are ahead weather-wise. And our pastor would get up there and he would get, and he would have, it was, it was, it was, you know, you just call out your favorite song. So you'd raise your hand and say, all right, who's got a song for us? You know, somebody in the congregation, we'd sing it out of the hymn book. Somebody raise their hand and we'd sing that song. So it was a request-only night. And it was a beautiful time. And I remember just looking around. Now, you know, even people who sat around mostly grumpy all the time that you looked at them, you said, there's a person that has no joy in their life. They have no joy. But you see these folks start to smile. You see their lips move. They didn't want you to see their lips move. But you begin to see their lips move by the end of the service, right? But it was just a great time of community, a great time of sharing, a great time of just on Sunday nights, we just sang hymns. And then usually a lot of times after singing the hymns, we would go eat afterwards, which made things all the more better. But you already know that about me. Anytime we get an excuse to eat, I say, let's do it. An older Bible teacher once said, he said, when we are in our prosperity or up on the mountaintops, our prayers come from our lips. And therefore, the Lord is forced to cast us down to the end of our prayers so that our prayers may come from our hearts. And these ladies this morning, as they were talking about the struggles in their life, how even in our hard times, the Lord has something to teach us. And I said, yes, amen. Now, I didn't shout that out loud with them, but they were preaching my sermon for me this morning. In fact, I almost told them, I said, you know, if this wasn't Southern Baptist life and we were some other denomination, I might can let you come up and preach this morning because you are speaking on the very things that I'm going to preach on this morning. And this psalmist, we see that that's exactly where he finds himself. He's down in the dumps. He's down in the bottom. He's in the pit. He finds himself in despair in the depths, and he's crying to the Lord. He's begging to the Lord for rescue. He's begging to the Lord to hear him. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He doesn't feel like the Lord is hearing him. So he's pleading that the Lord would hear his cry, would hear his supplication, would pay attention to his prayers. Now I've got a question for you. Have you ever had a friend who said to you, this is a friend that loves the Word of God. This is a friend who loves the gospel. I mean, memorize the scripture. I mean, you, you know those people. You just walk to them and they've got a scripture. They always got one on the end of their tongue. They don't need to open up the Bible. It's right there because they've taken the time to hide God's Word in their heart. And maybe you've come up to them and you know they've had a recent bout and you're coming to visit them. And that, those those friends would say, you know, I can't even pray right now, Rick. 
I can't even open my Bible and concentrate on it. Right? I can't read one more verse without losing my concentration. I'm so down. I'm broken. I'm in the depths. I don't feel as if God's hearing my prayers. Have you ever had a friend like that? Have you ever had a person in your life, a family member, someone that's been in a situation like that? Have you ever been in your situation like that? I'm kind of in a situation like that in my life right now. It started about a year ago. And it's been just a weird season for me. Just a very odd season in life where I'm just, I'm just unsure. I'm just unsure of things. I used to always walk on concrete. And now I don't know that that's concrete down there anymore. I mean, life... Have you ever experienced that season in life? Have you been around people that experience life? This is what the psalmist is talking about. This is the kind of thing. He's in the pit. So if you felt in this situation, if you feel yourself in this situation this morning, you're not alone. We're not alone. Thousands of years ago, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist wrote down precisely this type of personal account. Can you hear it? Out of the depths I cry to you, O God. Have you ever been there in your prayers where you know the only thing you could do was to cry out to the Lord because there was nothing left for me to do? And just like those ladies observed this morning as they pray for me, yeah, there are seasons, and just like that old pastor that said there, that God, sometimes he pushes us down into those depths. Not because he wants to punish us. That's not the purpose of these times in life. It's because he wants to teach us. He wants to draw us out. He wants to grow us and to stretch us. And a lot of times, the only way that could happen is if we experience the turmoil, the stress, the discomfort that life brings to a sinful people. It just happens. I don't like not knowing where my next step's going to be. But I'm learning not necessarily like it, but to learn that it's important for me to understand it. And to kind of, in some little way, be accustomed to what that feels like when I step off and the concrete's not there. You see, this psalmist is in the pit, just like many of us will find ourselves, just like every Christian will. This one time I heard an old pastor say, you're either coming out of the pit or you're going into the pit. Or you're in that little bit of time that you get in between the next pit. But you're going there. Every Christian does. And what we need to begin to see is that in those times of prayer, God just haven't left, has not left us to ourselves. God gives us a song to sing. When we're there, even in the midst of our, our despair, and that's the first thing I want you to see, if you see anything else this morning. God gives us a, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's a song to sing. And then the next thing I want us to see, well, what's this song all about? Why is he having to sing in the first place? We see the crisis. Now the second thing, what's the trouble? What has the gotten the psalmist here? What's the deep problem that the psalmist is in this pit over? And I want you to see what the answer, that answer comes in verse 3. Look down at verse 3 with me. And he writes, the psalmist writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
Now I want you to ponder that verse for a minute. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In the other psalms that we've had so far out of these psalms of ascent, the problem has been persecution, maybe oppression, ridicule, threats, maybe some homesickness, but not in this psalm. This psalm's different. You see, here the psalmist is singing about the problem of sin in his life. The psalmist is looking into his own heart and he's saying, Lord, if you dealt with me the way that I deserve, I would not stand before you. I would be pronounced guilty as charged. If you really dealt with me, Lord, in accordance with my sin, you would condemn me. You would cast me out. You would curse me. You would send me to hell. Now, church, here's what I want you to hear. We never have a better reason for distress than we, when we consider our own sin. My sin and you, your sin. The biggest, the deepest problem of our souls that we face, that we will ever face, is our own sin. You see, the bad news is worse than we could possibly imagine. You see, our sins are our deepest problem. It is our sin that separates us from God. It is our rebellion against Him that has distanced us from Him. It's not some failure on His part. It's my sin, and it's your sin. That's why Augustine, the church father, prayed, Lord, save me from myself. That was his prayer. Save me from myself, O Lord. I am my own worst enemy. You see, it's not Satan's sin. He has his own sin. It's your sin. Satan's not omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not omniscient, all-knowing. He's a created being. And yes, he tempts us. He draws us to rebel against God. But we sin once we've yielded to him and taken the bait. John Piper said this. He said, you know, I've never doubted the truthfulness of Christianity because of its critics and their accusations against the Bible. Well, that's a remarkable statement because this man, he, he has a Ph.D. In, New Testament, uh, in the New Testament. I mean, he would be associated with all the critical criticisms of the Bible, right? And how it's not true and how it's this and it contradicts itself, all these things. He would have been, he would have been very familiar with that. And he's telling us that not once has he ever been bothered by the critical assaults of the Bible. And, but then he says this. He says, but you know what does give me doubts? It's my own lack of progress in my sanctification. In other words, it was his own sin that caused him to doubt most the Christian faith. Our sin is our most grievous problem. It's going to lead us in places that we don't really want to go. And it's only going to want more and more and more of us. And this psalmist is saying, Lord, of all the problems I have, the greatest one is this. If I were to stand before you and you were to take into account my sin, I would not stand. You would be unjust not to declare me guilty. You see, this psalmist understands rightly where he's at before a holy God. Reminds me of Isaiah. Oh Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. 
You see, not one of us, because we're all familiar as good Baptists, we're all familiar with the wages of sin is death. We're all familiar that all for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All meaning all, us, me, you, and the doorpost, as my mom used to say. And the psalmist is troubled by his sin. It's the deepest problem of his soul. And if we're listening, if we're really reckoning with these things, we understand that it's the deepest problem of our souls that we will ever face. A good and holy God gives us his just decrees, and we choose not to do them. We just decide we're not going to do it. You see, this is what I call a spirit-led moment for the psalmist. Now, I'm not a charismatic. Though you look at me sometimes, I might be confused by having a little charisma in me, and that's okay. But this is a spirit-led moment because, see, it's only the Holy Spirit of God that would draw a person to consider their sin and to grieve over it, to draw you down into the pit. Look at what he says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You see, a person that's been drawn to this point, the next thing, for, I think, for them to consider, if this is the first time they've ever gone there, is going to be Christ. You see, for me, that was my, that's my testimony. I thought I was Christian. I'd grown up Christian. I've been Christian all my life. Uh, I love Jesus, happy Jesus, but I still did what I wanted to do, right? Like many of us have. But there was a point that God drew me to a pit. There was a point in my life where good things have happened, and then all of a sudden I'm down in the bottom because I was considering my sin. The more I read of the Scriptures, the more I read of the Scriptures, the more I saw how sinful and broken I was. And I, like the psalmist, and I pray that hopefully many of you have considered your sin and have prayed something very similar. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. If you, oh, Lord, should mark iniquities, how could I stand? How could I stand? You see, the psalmist is considering the cost of all that he's done. He sees the the foulness of rebelling against God, and he's singing out to the only one who could do anything about it. And what about you? Have you ever considered your sin, your rebellion against the holy God? It's a crucial responsibility. It's foundational for every believer to have been to that point. But not for both our salvation or our justification, but also our sanctification. As the ladies mentioned, we get in these pits, we need to consider while we're in the pits. You know, sometimes you don't get to the pit because God just takes you there. Sometimes you put yourself in the pit through your sin. And sometimes God does just put you in the pit because he wants to teach you something far greater about who he is and about what he's done and about who you are. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Well, right now, we're looking at bad news. He's lamenting over this. He's sorrowful. He's in despair because this is the worst news, but it's very true news for each one of us in here this morning. 
But what we're about to see is the psalmist's mood is fixing to change. It's, we're fixing to see this, this movement. And that's the next thing I want you to see. That God's forgiveness is based on God. Yes, you're a sinner. And you know what? You're so sinful, you're not even as sinful as you could be, more than likely. We could probably be a lot more sinful than we actually are. But I want you to look at verse 7. And we see the solution to the trial of this soul for the psalmist. In verse 7, it goes like this. We see that 1 and 2, that the lament is in verses 1 and 2. He's in the depths, and the cause of the lament is recorded in verse 3. And we see here in verse 7 that God's forgiveness is not based on us, you and I, but it's based on God. It flows from him. It sources him. There is hope in this because it's God's forgiveness is based on who he is, not who we are or what we deserve. Amen? Notice what the psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. Notice what the psalmist says here. His hope for forgiveness is not based on his deserving. He knows full well that if it's his deserving that is the cause, then he will not stand. His hope is not in that he hasn't been that bad or he hasn't not just done that bad. His hope is not in that he's been misunderstood or that he's been misjudged. No, there's no hope in him. Now, I want you to think about something. How many of you have ever read Genesis? You ever read the book of Genesis? Maybe just read Genesis 2, 3, just basic stuff. You know, if we don't get Genesis right, if we don't understand Genesis, we get the whole Christian faith wrong. Really? Now, let's think about it, because sometimes we think our sin at that bad. Oh, I said some things about, I said some things about Joe. I, 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 okay, no problem. Or I looked at this magazine, and there were those pictures, or I looked on the Internet, there were those pictures there. Maybe the woman was even fully dressed. I'm, I'm giving it away, guys. Maybe the woman was fully dressed, but still you had these thoughts that entered into your mind. But we tend to downplay, oh, it's not that bad. Have you ever thought about Adam and Eve? You ever thought about them? Sure you have. I mean, we're Christians. Let's just go back there. Have you ever thought about the sin of Adam? What was the sin of Adam? Did he kill somebody? No, Adam didn't necessarily. Well, he's probably the largest serial killer ever known to man. But it wasn't. He didn't kill anybody. Right then, that rebelled against God, what did he do? You see, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, get the picture. Adam's been placed in the garden by God himself, creator of the universe. Beautiful picture. And he said, Here, here's, here's your garden. Here's your garden, Adam. You can have everything in this garden. It's yours. Do with it. Tend it. Keep it. Enjoy it. Savor it. But there's just one thing that you can't do. 
don't eat of the fruit of that one tree. One tree out of the entire Garden of Eden. And what does Adam do? He was not content enough with all the bounty that God had given him. He had to have that one tree. He had to have it all. And as a result. So if you think your sin isn't that bad, think about eating a piece of fruit. God had said not to do it. And that brought sin and death into the world. It brought rebellion. That we'll see in the next chapter, after we'll see in chapter 3, how that sin reads. And then chapter 4, we see how his first sons, how one son kills the other. And it all spirals out of there to the least to the flood because all of mankind is wicked. So don't tell me you better take your sin seriously. When you go there, don't hide it. Because it'll be like a wound. That you cover up and you try to put some makeup on it so that it goes away, but it keeps getting infected. It keeps getting bigger and bigger until it explodes. And the next thing you know, the infection's in your bloodstream. Then you've got to go to the hospital and they say, oh my God, I got sepsis. So they want to put IVs in you. They have to hook a cardiac monitor to you until eventually you die. Because see, if you accept your sin and you, be, and you say, oh, it's not that bad, it's not bad. Yes, it is. Whether you eat of a piece of fruit or you take a forbidden look, it causes the same thing, death. And so don't be a church. Don't be a people who just accept their sin, who just say, no, like the psalmist is crying out. But see, there's a time for him to joy. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there's plentiful redemption. His hope for forgiveness is not based on his deserving. He knows he's not deserving. There's no hope in him. Now, I know some of you think you're not that bad, and I get it. I often don't think I'm that bad either. I like to think of myself as pretty good most of the time. I think, I think, that, I think that's natural. But then I was thinking, as I was thinking about this sermon, as I think about, have you ever wondered what would happen if your deepest, darkest, secret sins, maybe you haven't committed it, maybe it's just been an idea in your mind. Maybe it's something your heart's played around with a time or two. What about if that was brought to light? Because remember, I said you're not as sinful as you could be, but you're still sinful. You're still rebellious. Like the psalmist said, who could stand before you if you should mark our iniquities, O Lord? But have you ever wondered what people would think of you And if you were judged by them, what the result would be? You know, I, we live in a very interesting time to me, a very time when I think it's very critical for the people of God to live according to the Word of God. I think it's very critical because I see the world, largely a world who has gone undiscipled. I think it's time for the church to truly shine, to truly look different from the rest of the world. I mean, I, you could ask me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, gosh, 20 years ago, if people would actually be having the conversation in, in news media, in podcasts, on social media, that it would be okay for adults to have, or to have sex with children. But yet, it's here, church. 
Now, my question to us is, this is God's battle, but what are God's people going to do? Are we going to be silent? Or are we going to be God's people? Are we going to pursue holiness? You know, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. It begins with the people of God. It begins with the family of God. Judgment begins here. It begins with you and me. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Now, that's not the focus of this message this morning. What I want you to deal with right now, but I do want you thinking in that direction. Because this is God's word. This is how he's called his people to be. It's time we start looking and striving toward holiness and leaving our sin behind. You're not as sinful as you could be. I mean, if you look at the news, we're constantly bombarded by stories of how depraved and evil human beings are. I mean, right here, right now, taking into account those secret desires, those darkest parts of us, who of us could stand before a holy God? You know what we deserve? Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserve God rain holy brimstone and fire down upon us right now if we're just trusting in ourselves. And if it's bad here, we see how bad it is out in the rest of the world. And I think, why isn't it more evil? I mean, if you really get it, why is it more evil? And we know right now the Holy Spirit restrains a lot of man's depraved desires. It's only by the grace of God that it isn't worse. Because it could get a whole lot worse. But it's bad, people. And church, we need to respond, and we need to respond here first, in each of us. And this psalmist is struck by this very thing, that Lord, if you were to deal with me the way my, my wicked desires of my heart deserve, I wouldn't stand. And if you were judged on the basis of the desires, we would not stand. And that's where the psalmist is. That's what got him here. And that's why he's in the depths. And so forgiveness, if forgiveness is based on us, there's no hope. There's an old saying. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you hadn't. This says it's old. It says even our repentance needs repenting of. Have you ever thought about that? That even in your best repentance, there's still more to be repented of? There's enough sin in our best repentance to send us in hell. And the psalmist's hope for forgiveness is based on the Lord's loving kindness. It's based on God. Look at him verse 7 again with me. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. The kind of love that continues to show mercy even when we don't deserve it. Especially when it's undeserved. I think if we go back to not a psalm of ascent, but we go back to Psalm 51. Everybody know the significance of Psalm 51? Psalm of David, right? Now just think, David writes this following his, his time with Nathan. Now, now what's happened in David's life? Well, just think of it. He had planned the murder of one of his most faithful soldiers. And he had taken that man's wife for his own. He committed adultery with this woman. Her name was Bathsheba. And she made her own. And he covered it up with lies. You see how bad we can be? But listen to, ver listen, listen, listen to, what, listen to what David says. Listen, because it, it sounds a lot like this psalm to that this morning in 130. David says this, he writes, Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, David didn't plead for anything about what he had done. Well, Lord, you know I've been king. You know I've done mostly good. You know I've been at, I've been at, at, at the sanctuary every time we've had sanctuary. I've been there to worship in the temple. You know I've done good. He doesn't plead that. He goes, Lord, he, 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 he's admitting, yes, Lord. I've rebelled against you. But look what he's saying. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that your words may be justified and, and you may be blameless in your judgment. I mean, David is confessing his sins. That's a, that's, a, that's a heart like the psalmist today who's understanding the gravity of what they've done. They see their, the, the sinfulness before them. And they're crying out to the only one who can do anything about that. And that's our God. So right there in Psalm 130 and 51, deal with me, Lord, according to your love and kindness, Lord. I've only got one plea, and it's your loving kindness. Don't deal with me as I deserve. Deal with me according to your loving kindness. And that should be the beginning of how we deal with one another in loving kindness. Not in wrath. Recognizing that if I give them what they deserve, then really I'm saying I should get what I deserve. And I don't want what I deserve. But praise God for God that Jesus took what I deserved and gives me what I don't deserve, his loving kindness, his grace, his mercy. As these psalmists who would look forward to the cross, look forward to the coming Messiah, they would see it, they knew it was coming. And now we have it in Christ Jesus our Lord. Deal with me according to your loving kindness. And that brings us to my fourth and last thing as I'm going to kind of close up here. That with the Lord, there's abundant loving kindness and there's redemption. And we see the psalmist. He moved from lament. He moved to his problems. He moved recognizing that God was the only one who could do anything about it. Now he gives praises, thanksgiving in verses 4 through 8. Let me read them to you real quick. Read along with me. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And you know there's nothing more better than we can do is to understand that we, we are in those times, in those trials, in those times of despair, of hurt, of pain, that we just have to wait on the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we're not active, praying, grabbing other, other believers to pray with us, seeking the Lord's desire and will and the way he would have us to move in these things. But I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. Church, where are you going to find hope? Yeah, we find it in Christ. How do you find Christ? You find him in his word. How do you hear God speak to you? You hear him speak to you as you read his word aloud to yourself in the evenings and in the mornings. You give yourself a steady feast of his word. He's given us his word. He's given us songs to sing to him in times of trial and of difficulty. And then he goes on to say, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. 
So the last thing of record we see is the abundant loving kindness and redemption. Not only does God give us a song to sing in our despair, not only is sin the deepest problem our souls will face, not only do we learn of that God's forgiveness is based on God, but we hear an expression of thanksgiving in the psalm of God's abundant loving kindness and redemption. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Calvin, John Calvin, says you do not know God until you know him in his grace and mercy. You do not know God until you know him in his grace and mercy, and you cannot know him in his grace and mercy until you know that you need his grace and mercy. You won't even see his mercy until you know that you need his mercy. And this psalmist knows his need of that mercy. And it's precisely because of this that he learns something about God that he wouldn't have known otherwise. That there is abundant loving kindness with the Lord. But you know even this psalmist could have not fathom that the loving kindness would cost, cost God's justice because God shows his loving kindness, not by setting aside his justice. We deserve what we deserve, right, church? But he fulfilled that justice in the person and work of Jesus Christ on that cross for us. Jesus takes the penalty of our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. You say, I hear you, Rick. I believe you. But I'm not really that bad. And I'll remind you, in Romans 5, 12, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Eve takes the apple. She gives it to Adam. He eats well, the fruit. And he eats. Doesn't sound all that bad. Except for the fact that a holy and gracious creator had told him not to eat of that one fruit. You see, the problem wasn't so much in the apple as it was, was, was in the man. He didn't felt he had all that he deserved. He didn't feel like, oh, well, that's okay. He just took God's, took what God had told him, and God told him this in person, right? God, it's the implication. God had spoke it to him, and he did it anyway. Today, it doesn't, unless as we see in the world today, that doesn't seem like that bad of a deal, but it is. In fact, it's so much so that therefore sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. It spread to all men, every single one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We inherit our sin from Adam. It's right there. He's our federal head. He's the head of the Adamic covenant is Adam. And because he ate of that tree, all of human mankind was plunged into the darkness of sin and death because he defied the creator. Did you hear that when I said it earlier? Well, yeah. Read, read Genesis 2 and 3 and then go to Romans 5. You'll get my drift. And so it, that's all bad news. If all we ever do, I'm not telling you to focus on your sin. I just want you to recognize who you are. Where you've come from. 
You know, where, I, where I'm from, there were, there were parts of the city, right? And if you were from the south side, you were a certain particular person. It didn't matter who you were personally. But if you were from that side of the town, you were that person. All right? And if you were from the north side of the town, you were this type of person. Now, I think they've probably still got that here to some degree. It's a little more spread out because I hear, like, if you're from Mount Clare, you're this type of person. And if you're from, if you're from Molino, you're this type of person. And, uh, you know, if you're from Century, you're this type of person. I remember when I was starting Health and Hope and I was opening a clinic, uh, a, a clinic up there in Century. And I went over to Jay. You know, I'm kind of ignorant of a lot of things, and I went over to Jay, and I was telling them all about, you know, what we're going to do over there, and they go, okay, well, what, the question was, now these are pastors, and, you know, some, some okay, well, what are you going to do for us? Well, I'm, I'm telling you, no, it is for y'all. No, it's not for us. You see, if you want to do it for us, you got to come over here and do it, because you're over there, and then, so, see, you're from over there. But see, one thing we share is we all share fact that we're sinners without hope undone because of our sin because we inherited it for Adam and then because we go on and sin ourselves that's unique that's unique to all of us every one of us is we share that but Paul goes on in that same chapter just a few verses down he said therefore as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so that one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Did you hear that, church? Grace abounded all the more. So that <clears throat> as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're sinners. And there's nothing we can do about it. The only one who can is God. The psalmist knew that. He cried out, oh Lord, how can I stand before you? He knew he couldn't. But he also knew that God was, had plentiful redemption and loving kindness. And so he goes to the Lord and he offers up praise. He calls upon the Lord. So what do we do when we're in the pit? Well, we sing to God. What do we do when he feels like he doesn't have pressure? Well, we sing to God and we call him and we uh, glorifying him, magnifying him, seeing his extreme worth. If we're Christian. But not everyone of us in here in this room probably is Christian. There's probably always one or two, three or four that aren't Christian, trusting in rituals to save themselves, trusting in their own goodness to save themselves. The psalmist says there is no good, there is no rituals that's going to save you, only God. And so we come to Christ because that grace may abound through righteously to eternal, through eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. Yes, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, when you understand your sin, when you're drawn to the depths to see how, see how ugly your sin is and how you rebelled against God, when one calls upon Jesus, there's, a, there's, a, there's so many things that happen. Oh, just like this cosmic level, right? The scriptures describe it as being once you're in darkness and now you're in light. Once you were a child of wrath, now you're a child of God. 
And these are all good things. But it's cosmic in nature when a sinner confesses Christ. Because you see, in covenant theology, Adam, I was born as under the covenant of Adam. I disobeyed God and therefore I got what I deserve, death. But you see, when one confesses Christ... When one calls out for Jesus to save them from their sin, a miraculous things happen, and the covenant now changes. You see, I just swapped the Adamic covenant for the new covenant. I cry out to the new covenant's head. Who is the head of the new covenant? Jesus. We're about to celebrate his meal, which was inaugurated in his blood. Jesus is now my covenant head. We call it the covenant of grace. We call it the new covenant. Yes, I'm in him. And so God does something about my sin. Oh, yeah, he says he'll not remember it before. He'll, he won't hold it against me. Why? Because he takes me and he places me in his son. It's not that I'm righteous alone. It's now that I'm in Christ and I have his righteousness. You see, for those of us who are in Christ, we carry around Christ's righteousness, not a righteousness of Rick, not a righteousness of Mike, not a righteousness of Nick. No, we carry around Christ's righteousness because we're in him. And now that I'm in him, I'm in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And church, that's what we can cry out for. Amen? So if you're in here and you've never trusted Christ for your salvation, maybe you've trusted in your great theological knowledge. Maybe you've trusted in your great church attendance. Maybe you've trusted in being Southern Baptist as your mode of what's going to save you. Those things won't save you. Only Jesus Christ will save you. And he will save you when, he, when you know what you need to be saved from. You're not bad. You're depraved. You see, we desire naturally what we want, not what God wants, which puts us in straight contradiction with God. But Christ comes in and he changes that. And he gives us a new life. He gives us a new heart where God promises back in the Old Testament that he'll write his words or his law upon our hearts. And big things begin to change. So church, if you've never trusted Christ, I pray cry out to Christ. If you have trusted Christ, I say the time is now. Yeah, when we're in the pit, let us cry out to the Lord. Let us cry out. Let us sing songs to him. Let us be people who, when people are in the pit, we don't have to wait for them to call us. We go to them, and we encourage them. Let me sing with you, because I've been there, or I'm headed there, so I want to be right here with you right now. Please rise. You know, I always get a lot of ribbing, a lot of teasing from the elders. Uh, you know, they'll often joke at me about how long my sermons take, and I say, well, they take as long as they take, you know. And I'll be honest with you, I do try to be short. I wish I could be that guy who could come in here in 20 minutes, give you the full length of the gospel, and tell you everything you needed to know on Psalm 130, and you'd be out of here by 1125, and we'd be patting each other back, but I can't do it. I try. I started with 16 pages. I got down to seven. So I feel I did something. I cut out a lot. There's a lot of this sermon you didn't hear. 
It's in the, it's in the trash bin of my laptop. But here's what I want you to know. That Christ is king. We not only name our church that, but that's also you can look through Scripture and you can see Christ the King there. I also ran across the website that was, or our YouTube channel that's Christ the King. I go, dang it, we got our YouTube channel. Now we've got to come up with another name. No, I'm just kidding. Just teasing. But one thing I'd like you, I'd like you to do, I want to send you home with some homework. I really want you to do, to read through, well, read through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then read Romans chapter 5. I think it's a great way for us to see who we are, what God has done, who we are. But I'm so thankful for the new birth. I'm so thankful for my salvation in Christ this morning. I'm thankful like the ladies were saying this morning. I'm just grateful. God may choose to plunge me off the cliff this afternoon. He very well. Because life can change just that fast. You don't believe me? Go visit Ray McKnight. One day he's walking around fine, me and him jibber-jabbering about whatever, and the next day, what? A bleed hits him in his brain just like that. Changes his life. Life can change just that fast. So don't tarry. There ain't no waiting around. My coach used to have all the saying about this, but I'm not going to share what she'd say. But he, in other words, he'd say, you need to, need to do your business to get off the pot, Rick. You know what? We need to. The, look, we need to. We're the people of God. So for those of you who are unsaved, you need, to, you need to read the Scriptures. You need to confess Christ. You need to ask somebody to help you see Jesus and to see who you are and to see what God has done. And for you that are in the church, it's time for us to quit playing, folks. It's time for us to start singing lustily in the good times and sing even more lustily in the hard times. And it's time for us to look and see where do I need to be, who do I need to comfort, who do I need to help. Look, don't be a stranger. Not in this place. Not in this place. But we're going to come this morning, and I told you, we're going to share in our meal. And when, when we get ready for the meal, I really want you to hear the words Jesus is using. I really want you to hear the words that Paul relates to about Jesus to what I just preached this morning. But we come and partake of this meal. Now, who is this meal for? Y'all all know. I think, there's, I think everybody here... Everybody here has pretty much been here several times before, so I don't need to explain this more for you. But this meal is for believers. This meal is for those who have called on Christ as Lord and have been baptized. Why? Because Jesus delivered this meal first to his 12 disciples. Now, I don't care what church you belong to. So long as you're a believer in Christ, and you have been baptized, then I welcome you to come partake of this meal. If you have not been baptized, because you, then don't partake of this meal. Because you need a public profession of faith. And that public profession of faith is signifying that I have recognized that I'm a sinner in need of saving, and I've called on Christ Jesus to save me. It's not difficult. So if you're not the Lord's, don't come to the table. This is not open for everyone. This is open for God's people. And if you exclude yourself, you're excluding yourself for one of two reasons. Either you're, you, you're a saint who understands that they've been in habitual sin and they don't need to partake of this meal right now. They need to get with some faithful brothers or sisters and then they need to confess their sin before the Lord. And we need to help them get back on the path of repentance. 
and faith. Or you're an unbeliever and you're choosing to not take this meal. You're choosing to exclude yourself. That's who doesn't take it. So if you would, those as we're standing, I'm going to go. We're going to take, as Paul tells us, to have a time of, a time of, of self-examination. Examine yourself for your sin. Go before Christ. Ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you because we're preparing our hearts to take of his meal. Which, by the way, is the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will one day celebrate with Christ in heaven, enjoying the best of foods and of drink. So let us go before the Lord in a time of silence, and then I'll pray.